Let's just still our hearts before the Lord. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We magnify you. We just adore you. For you have won the victory. And we say hallelujah. We praise your name because, Lord, there's none like you. And the highest place that heaven affords is yours. And we just want to lift up your name tonight. And Lord, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff this evening in the next four weeks, but if we miss you in it all, Lord, we've missed, we've missed all there is. And we just draw near now, and we worship at your feet, Lord Jesus Christ, and we declare that your name is above every Amen. name in heaven and on earth. And your name is far above all principalities and powers, might and dominion, and every name that has been named in heaven and on earth, in this age and that which is to come. Lord, we just declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And over this moment and in this space, in this place, Lord Jesus, we invite you to come to rule and reign and have your way in our lives. Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. And we worship you tonight, and we invite you to come. Meddle in our affairs. Shake us up. Lord, renew our minds. Align our spirits and souls uh, into, into parallel with the plumb line of your truth. Lord, give us your mind tonight. Let our affections be set on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And Lord, if anybody has come in here tonight with their minds already made up in any, um, in any sense regarding the truths that we're going to consider, Lord, we, we are not, though we're going to reason with people, Lord, we're not here to argue. And so ask you, Lord, to just convince of truth, Holy Spirit. Your job is to convince of truth. And I just, I'm not going to try and do your job, Holy Spirit. You just come and you do what you do best, Lord, and have your way. So we just wait upon you now. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We bless you. We magnify you. You are worthy. You are holy. You're beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. We just love you, Lord. And we pray that you will be glorified tonight and you will draw near to us. In your name we pray. Everybody say it? Amen. Okay. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8. This is just a launching pad for all that we're going to look at tonight. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, Andy and I, when, when, when I was invited to come, um, it was by mutual agreement that this is the subject that, that I would bring. And um, tonight in particular, I, I felt, and we discussed this as well, that it was important, though many of you perhaps are already on the page as far as the question of whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are for today, you might agree with that entirely, but there may be some of you who don't, or more likely there's some of you who are sitting on the fence and not sure, perhaps because you've seen abuses or maybe uh, received abuses of people ministering in the gifts of the Spirit, so-called, and it's turned you off, Maybe your background has been one where you were taught against this type of uh, truth. And therefore, it's not that you're particularly opposed to it, but you're just not there and as far as convinced that it's all for today. So I want us to look at this question. Are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today? Now, first of all, look at this passage of Scripture with me, because it, it, the picture that, that is given to us is of a military leader returning home at the head of his army after routing the enemy troops. And he's taken many prisoners. Of course, this is Jesus. Um, he led captivity captive and gave gifts 
to men. So when he ascended on high, it's as if the Lord Jesus was a commander who defeated the realms of darkness of the cross, and he's risen now and he's ascended to heaven, and as he leads into heaven, he has prisoners, but he also has spoils of battle that he gives as gifts or tokens of his victory. And that's, that's the imagery that's being used here, that these gifts and spoils of battle are the gifts uh, of God's Spirit or the gifts of Christ to the church, which is a little bit different, as we'll see uh, later on. But what I want you to understand, the very outset of tonight and this series is, our focus must be on Jesus Christ. Okay? That is where the Father's focus is, and that is where the Spirit's focus is, on Jesus Christ. And before we launch into considering the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit wants you to know that it's all because of Jesus Christ that we have these gifts. It's because of what he did at the cross, rising again, sending to heaven. It's because of that that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And Jesus himself emphasized this in John 7, 39. Many of you will know um, 38 and 39 of John 7. He who believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Now listen to this. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And right away, there's that connection. The glorification, the ascension, glorification of Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit are connected. Again, John 14, 12, well-known verse, most assuredly I say to you, Jesus says, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these, listen, because I go to my Father. Now, often we emphasize, uh, and rightly so, because it's a staggering statement, that we'll do the works of Jesus and greater works, whatever that means, probably the extent of the works and geography of the works and all the rest. Don't think anybody's going to do better stuff than Jesus did, but we will be able to do what he did and do it to a greater extent. But we miss this important punchline in the verse, that it's all connected and contingent upon Jesus being glorified because he goes to the Father. And unless he goes to the Father, unless he's sitting at the right hand of majesty on high, a prince and a savior, king of kings and lord of lords, Holy Spirit isn't coming to the earth. So let's not lose Christ in the truths of the Holy Spirit, which I think sometimes happens, has to be said. Uh, and yet you can't focus on the Holy Spirit without talking about the Holy Spirit, can you? And so we're talking about these gifts. And of course, the Greek word for gifts is, well, we, we turn it into English, charisms, or, um, or uh, charisma is the literal Greek word, plural charismata. You may have heard of that term. And it's important to understand that because part of the word is charis, and that's the Greek word for grace. And these are grace gifts. These are not things that we work up or things that we achieve through even experience. We might hone them that way. It doesn't come through doing a course on anything. This is coming through Jesus, what he's done at the cross, by grace, and we receive it through faith because of Calvary. Now, post-Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost, God's presence is manifest in the church in at least two ways. Stay with me, okay? There's the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit display God's power. And if you like, the fruit of the Spirit depict God's personality. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith. Okay? So in the gifts, you've got his power, dynamism, and in the fruit, you've got his personality, his characteristics. Or to put it another way, the gifts are communication, God's communication divinely to us, and the, the, the fruit is divine character. Okay? You with me? And you need both. This is how God's manifest presence was displayed in the early church. It's the way it should happen today. We, I could take you on a, a journey through biblical history, 
to show you how the presence of God was manifested in the garden. It was manifested um, in the, the tabernacle. It was manifested in the temple. It was manifested. And there's various Shekinah incidents where the manifest dwelling of God comes forth. Of course, it was manifested in Jesus in bodily form. We beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The greatest manifestation of God's presence ever was Jesus. But he has not left us without his presence. He's not left us orphans. And on the day of Pentecost, that Shekinah glory was manifest in tongues of fire upon people's head, rushing mighty wind. Those are figures of the presence of God being near. But that was meant to continue in the church. By the gifts of the Spirit, God's power demonstrated, and the fruit of the Spirit, God's personality. Now, I've heard people say, maybe you have as well, the fruit of the Spirit's more important than the gifts of the Spirit. Anybody ever heard that? And they say, God's more interested in character than your abilities. And then there's other people, and they mightn't say it, but their emphasis is, well, uh, it's more power that matters rather than your personality. And sometimes you see that in the shoddy lives of some folk that are claiming to be doing stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit. Yeah? But it's not either or. It's both and. And if you want a true reflection of God's nature on the earth today, we're the church. We're also called not only the temple of the Holy Spirit, like the tabernacle and the temple was in the olden times, but we are called the body of Christ. We're meant to actually manifest the life of Christ today to this world. And if we're going to fully reflect the nature of God, we've got to have his power and his personality, his communication and his character. Someone put it like this, if, if the gifts without fruit is inadequate, fruit without gifts is ineffective. Yeah? So if fruit without gifts is inadequate, uh, sorry, if gifts without fruit is inadequate, fruit without gifts is ineffective. Think about it this way. We believe God's a God of love. Isn't that right? But what good, that's his character, what good is a God of love if he can't help us? He's got no power to help us. Power is very important. He's not a, a whiny God sitting in the corner with tears dripping down his face thinking, oh, what a terrible situation my people are in, but I can't do anything to help them. He's the omnipotent God, the all-powerful one. So we need both together because Christianity is a supernatural way of life. Who knows that? It's either supernatural or superficial. And I hope you've got the supernatural kind because it's not even our life at all, Galatians 2.20. It's not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's, it's the life of Christ himself, the life of God in us. And the only way to live that life is through his power and through his character. But the tragedy is that we often as individuals have divorced the supernatural source from our everyday experience. And that's not only individual, but that's corporate in the church. Much of the church, particularly in Ireland and here in the UK and in Western Europe, is operating in the flesh rather than the spirit. And even those who think they're operating in the Spirit sometimes are not. And this is where the gifts come in. Now, Ephesians 4 that we've just read talk about what I categorize as the ministry gifts. Um, if you read on, you'll see in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now this, he ascended, verse 9, sorry, what does it mean but that he also first descended in the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now that's worthy of our time, but we need to move on. 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now before we move on to the gifts of the Spirit, these are the gifts of Christ. And there's a distinction. There's the ascension gifts of Christ, which are different than the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of Christ are ministry gifts, and they're not abilities, they're people. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Some people um, think pastors, teachers are the same thing. I, I personally think they could be at times, but they can also be separate. So we call it five-fold ministries. 
All right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. These will be the foundation of the church. And, of course, many people think, oh, no, this is only for the, um, the apostolic age, they would say, which ended with the death of the apostles. But I beg to differ. And, um, in fact, they are necessary, verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for works of ministry. Now, can I just point out to you that these guys and girls that are given to the church by Jesus Christ were not given to do all the work because you pay them a salary. Just in case anybody had that little thought. Look at what verse 12 says. They were given to the church to equip the saints to do the works of ministry. So banish the thought, if it is in there anyway in the gray matter, that, that your minister or your pastor or your leaders are paid or in a position, even if they're not paid, they're in a position to do that. That's what they're there for, to do that. Uh-uh. They're there to train you to do it. So an evangelist is meant to train people to evangelize. A prophet is meant to train people to prophesy. You understand? It's to equip you to do the works of ministry. And uh, unfortunately... Not only is this not happening, largely because of a church, traditional church system that didn't come from God, didn't come from God, a lot of it became from man. Not only are we not equipping the saints, but there's nobody to equip the saints because we don't even recognize these ministries in the church. And so if, and I fall into this category, I'll not say which one or two, but what I'm saying is if you're not a pastor, in our culture, you're nothing. In some church cultures, you're nothing. Some denominations, if you're not a pastor, you're an evangelist. Right? But if you're not a pastor or an evangelist, like little old me, you're neither of those two. But God's called you. What are you? Because the church, a lot of the church, does not recognize any other positions but pastor and evangelist and a missionary, which is a kind of an evangelist. You understand? So we need a, a complete restructuring. We actually need a reformation in our, our spiritual leadership. This is a whole other message. I don't want to get on to it. But that's what we need. Because if we want... Listen, listen where, where do we start? If we want the manifest presence of God to break out among us, we need... When Moses was, was, was building the tabernacle, God told him to build it according to the pattern that he saw on the mount. And if we want to see God's life represented here on the earth in our communities, we can't bypass God's plan for the New Testament church and think that everything will just fall into place. So we need apostles with small A, we might call them small A apostles, but there are small A apostles. Uh, They're prophets, they're evangelists, they're pastors, and they're teachers. And we need to make way for them. We need to start recognizing those gifts. And we need to identify them and commend them in the church, we want to have the full power of the Holy Spirit in our assemblies. We need to do that. But that's not what you asked me to come here to speak about. <laughs> Spiritual gifts, or, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, have been categorized probably in about nine. And I don't think they're absolute. Okay? I, I, I mean, if you go to Romans 12 and a few other portions of the New Testament, you'll find other types of gifts mentioned. I think the nine spiritual gifts, just the way there's nine for the Spirit, they're general to types of giftings. And of course, you've got the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, workings of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Now, don't worry if you're not getting all this down, because we're going to spend time over the weeks looking at each of those to some degree. But sadly, before we even look at the minutiae of definitions and how we understand applications of these gifts, the church is divided over over whether or not these actually exist today. Now, that's for a number of reasons. Not least, the abuse of these gifts in certain Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And we have to be honest now. There has been an abuse and misuse of so-called gifts of the Spirit. And many in Christendom have reacted against that in a classic pendulum swing 
by rejecting the whole concept of spiritual gifts for today entirely. And that's a shame. And here's the reason why. Yes, Satan is in the business of counterfeits. You do know that. I hope you do. Be not deceived. That's a, that's a, a statement often made in New Testament. Jesus said it as well. And he will try to deceive you. Do not be deceived. But listen, you also know, don't you, that there's only ever a counterfeit of the truth. You understand? The devil is not in the business of counterfeiting things that don't exist. Have you ever heard of, of a counterfeit 30-pound note? Have you ever heard of one of those? Never. Seriously. Why, why have you never heard of one of those? There's no such a thing as a real 30-pound note. And whether it's the New Age movement or the occult or whatever, you will find that Satan, it's like um, the magicians in Pharaoh's court, he's, he's always a step behind, but he's trying to copy what God's doing. He's trying to create his own brand of it. But he only ever counterfeits what is true. So we should be asking as the church, where is the truth? And so many want to point out the counterfeit, and maybe they're right in some circumstances. But often those that are doing that, sometimes self-appointed spiritual policemen, they're not asking a question, where's the real thing? Where is the genuine? Leonard Ravenhill once said, we've been warned of false fire by fireless men, and too often we settle for no fire at all. Hmm. It's interesting because the Corinthians, and we will spend a bit of time there over the weeks, there's a great deal of matter about spiritual gifts there. The Corinthian church was a very charismatic church. In other words, it was a church where the gifts of the Spirit were exercised widely. Okay? But not only was it very charismatic, it was very problematic. Because the gifts were running out of control in this particular church. But what I want you to notice is, not once, now mark it, not once did Paul the Apostle come to those Christians who were misusing and abusing spiritual gifts. Not once did he say to them, this is counterfeit. Not once did he say to them, you are being deceived by the devil. And he never, ever even implied you need to knock this on the head because in another decade or so, this won't be around anymore and you'll have a Bible and you'll not need these spiritual gifts. So you're, you're getting all uptight about nothing. No. In fact, what Paul did was he taught them how to use them. He taught them how to use them even though they abused them. So we might put it like this. He prescribed their use, not proscribed their use. It's often fear of the false that shuts us down when it comes to spiritual gifts. And so we see something we don't like or we've been involved in something that we've come on the rough end of, of, of somebody who's been working in the flesh and claiming to be um, speaking on behalf of the Spirit. And we fear that happening again, and we fear people moving away from the Word of God. And but, but imagine if Paul had had that fear when he was writing the Corinthians. How different a letter we would have had. He would have been proscribing rather than prescribing. It's obvious to me anyway that there's an absence of power in the church today here in Ireland. There's a form of godliness denying the power. And that the kingdom of, of God, Scripture says, is not in word but in power. Do you think it's coincidental that the absence of power is often linked to an aversion to the ministry of the Spirit? And even a disbelief in the gifts of the Spirit? Think that's just a chance? I don't think so. But let's address this before we go on any further into looking at these individual gifts. Let's address the question of whether or not these gifts are for today. And I want to say categorically and absolutely there is not one scripture that says 
these gifts are not for the church today. So I, I'm not interested in your theology in the sense of some kind of rational construct that you impose upon Scripture and fit it into that shape. I'm not interested in that. I'm talking about biblical theology now. What the Bible teaches. There is not one verse that says these gifts are not for today. Now that ought to mean something. Should it not? You still with me here? And on the contrary, there are several scriptures that indicate, in fact, that there would be a continuation of these gifts. Now, I want to take you to those scriptures now, so get your fingers busy and look up your Bible. First of all, Acts chapter 2, and of course, that's the Pentecost outpouring, the original outpouring of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has come, and Peter's preaching this sermon. Many are converted, but look at this in verse 39. Peter's trying to explain to them what's happening. And he says, this is the promise. That was, this is that which was spoken of by Joel, the prophet. But look at verse 39. He specifies to whom this promise will be fulfilled. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. And that's not geographically afar off. That's a far off in time. As many as the Lord our God will call. Now, are we a far off from Peter on the day of Pentecost? Yes. Are we called by the Lord to as many as the Lord our God shall call? Are we called by God? hope you are. It's no way of talking about being saved and born again. So who's this promised to? Everybody in the future that's called by God. Is that what that says? I think that's clear to me. I'm maybe a bit simple on it, but that satisfies me. First Thessalonians 5. That should mean something, shouldn't it, when it was on the day of Pentecost, when the whole thing started. First Thessalonians 5. Remember, these are the epistles. Some people say, oh, there's not the emphasis in the epistles on the gifts of the Spirit, etc. First uh, Thessalonians 5 and verse 19. Now, this is a command, all right? Do we take the commands of Scripture seriously? We ought to. Do not quench the Spirit. That could be rendered, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Now, that's what we have made uh, a skill of in churches, putting out the Spirit's fire. Do not despise prophecies. There's another emphatic command. Did you read that? It means what it says. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Okay, so there's the balance. You're not to be gullible. You're not to be like a baby. You know the way a baby puts anything in its mouth as it's crawling around the ground. We we as Christians are not to be baby Christians who just imbibe everything that's said to be the Holy Spirit. You have to test everything, all things. Hold fast what is good. So there is some good. As well as the counterfeit, there will be some good. And abstain from every form of evil. But Paul is adamant here, don't quench the Spirit, don't despise prophecies. Now, I just want to ask you, is anybody here tonight, and obviously I'm not asking for a show of hands, who despises prophecies? If I was to prophesy to you right now, you wouldn't like it. Just stick to the word, son. Just stick, stick to the word. You wouldn't like it. You despise prophecies. Well, you're going against Scripture. Scripture now. Everything I'm going to say to you is from Scripture tonight. Turn with me then to First uh, Corinthians, and this is where we'll spend a lot of time in the weeks ahead, probably. I actually don't know what I'm doing yet. I just about know what I'm doing tonight, but I think we'll end up here. We're bound to. First, Thessalonians, uh, First Corinthians 14. Verse 5, first of all, now Paul's talking about a lot of gifts of the Spirit, but look at what he says. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 14. I wish you all spoke with tongues. I wish you all spoke with tongues. All. Does that say all there? Does all mean all? All spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. Paul, calm down. People have been talking about you. 
Now, that's Paul's wish. For, uh, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the crazy gang. The charismatic nuthouse that was Corinth, that were running away with spiritual gifts. And you're saying, I know, but he's just about to, to tell them to calm down. Yes, he is. But before he does that, he wants us 2,000 years later to understand that he is not against these things. In fact, he wants them in practice within the church. And in fact, in another place, he says, I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, that is saying something. When you think that this, this was out of control, the, the provision he, he made is that um, two or three of you should speak in tongues, and that should be interpreted. When you're speaking publicly a message to the church, two or three should be speaking in tongues, and it should be interpreted, and no more than that. And the inference is that they were all getting up and competing and trying to be louder than the one beside them. It wasn't them all collectively praising the Lord together. That's not what's being talked about. But people thinking they had a word for the church and competing with one another. And yet Paul's coming. Yes, he does uh, prescribe ways to bring order, but he's saying, I speak in tongues more than you all. But he also says, I'd rather speak five words in a known language, 10,000 uh, 10, in an unknown language language. Isn't that right? So, Paul, if you would rather speak five words in public, in language you can understand, and in other words, for us, English, I'd rather speak five words in English, Paul, tantamount to saying, than 10,000 words in tongues, in public. So, you ought to be scratching your head and saying, well, then, Paul, where's, where are you speaking in tongues more than everybody else? It's obviously in private, isn't it? But that's for another, that's for another night. Look at verse 39 and 40. And this, by the way, is the conclusion of the matter about spiritual gifts in the Corinthian epistle. And he says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, he sat down and established the decorum that there should be in the church. He has taught them about the order that there should be in operating the spiritual gifts. But what's his conclusion? Earnestly desire to prophesy, and whatever you do, don't forbid speaking in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. What are the all things? All those things he's been talking about. So if, and I know people that they go off on one, decently, all things decently and in order. And what they have is the decency and the order of a graveyard. Because that's what, if you go to any graveyard, there's decency and order, isn't there? They're all in straight line, all the headstones and flowers and all the rest. But there's death. But this is a different order than our decency and in order. It can be a bit messy at times, as we see from Corinth. And it's a challenge to bring order to it but we're not whatever we do to stamp out the life and put out the fire of the Spirit. If you go into a maternity ward right now, wherever your nearest hospital is, you go there, it'll be messy, it'll be noisy, it'll look like chaos, but I can assure you there's order there. But there's also life. Now, I know, because I... I should have told you this, I suppose. I denied the gifts of the Spirit, and I preached against them. That's just an aside there for you. But 1 Corinthians 13 was one of the texts that's often used to say, well, these gifts are not for today. And I want you to turn there. This is Psalmist right in the middle of chapter 12, doing with spiritual gifts in chapter 14. But chapter 13 is all about love, but it's in the context of spiritual gifts, and, and, and you've got to see that. And we'll maybe touch on that in further weeks. But look at verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Has anybody ever heard those verses as a proof text to say that tongues have ceased, prophecies have ceased. And that which is perfect, which they say is the canon of Scripture, when we've got our Bible, 
the full word of God. We don't need all these, what they call, revelatory gifts. You've heard that, haven't you? Well, there's a number of questions we need to ask. There's two points, really, that I need to make that I think clears this up absolutely. Paul says tongues will cease in prophecy too, but they will not cease until there is perfect knowledge and we are known as we know in the future. We know as we are known in the future. Now, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. But I do not believe that we are in a perfect knowledge state right now. And I do not believe that we know even as we are known. I think that we still see through a glass darkly, as Paul says here. Would you agree with me? John Wesley, you heard of him? He said uh, in his his commentary letter to the Thessalonian church, he does not say, that's Paul, either that these or any other miracles shall cease till faith and hope shall also cease till they shall all be swallowed up in the vision of God and love be all in all. And he's right. But what clears it up for me more than that is contextually. Do you know that often the questions we have in books of the Bible, you can find the actual answer in the same book if you read it contextually. God's often given the key in the very same book. Sometimes it's in the same chapter, but often it's in the same book. Go with me to chapter 1 of Corinthians. The very start, the key is there. Verse 4. Now, try to now assimilate everything that, that, that I've told you already. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace. What's the word for grace? Charis. The grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. And what we will see as we we look in the weeks ahead is that the gifts of the Spirit could be summed up to an extent in utterance gifts, spoken gifts, and knowledge gifts. He's talking about these. They're enriched by the grace of God in the gifts. And look, just to prove it, verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, does that sound familiar? Prophecy and tongues shall cease when that which is perfect is come, and we know as we are known, and we're no longer seeing through a glass darkly, and hope and faith are gone, and love remains. What's that? When we see Jesus Christ, when he returns. And Paul actually says, my prayer is that you would come behind in no gift until Jesus comes. There's your answer. And it's nothing to do with canon of Scripture, whilst we revere it and cherish it. That's got nothing in it. It's not even mentioned in the context. So, On the contrary, rather than teaching us that these gifts are not for today, Scripture, I believe, is very clear that they are for today. But then people will say, "Uh, well, that's your interpretation. I've got my own. But um, the great men and women of God in history, Christian history, they didn't need these gifts of the Spirit. The great heroes of, of the church didn't experience these. That is false. Depends whose histories you're reading and how airbrushed they are at times. You know that historians disagree? Did you know that? Because they're selective in in their records and they interpret evidence according to their own um, persuasion. But further to the contrary of opinions of some, there was not a complete suspension of spiritual gifts in church history. And I could keep you long, I'm not going to. But you research it yourself. As early as the church fathers, the early church fathers, there's evidence of the use of the gifts of the Spirit. Justin Martyr, A.D. 100 to 165. Hermas, who died around A.D. 150. Tertullian, 160 to 225. Arrhenius, 
175 to 196. Even St. Augustine, though early in, in his faith, he denied those type of gifts. He believed they died with the apostles in his later life and, uh, and his great work, the city of God. He talks about the miraculous and he was even used in some of those miracles. So the early church fathers, after the death of the apostles, were not only themselves operating these gifts, they were witnessing to others operating in them in the confines of the church. Then we go into the saints of the middle, medieval era. And there are groups, individuals, and groups of people, even the Waldenses and others, who were experiencing the miraculous among them. Come to the Reformation. And largely, a lot of the Reformers were anti the miraculous, and that was because they saw what they felt was an abuse of the miraculous in Roman Catholicism, uh, linking it to idolatry and all the rest. So they threw out the baby with the bathwater, literally. But even at that, Martin Luther, some of the other reformers, recognized that there, there, there were miracles, there were people healed, there were deliverances in answer to prayer. Movements like the French Huguenots, that some of you will be of Huguenot descent, who came out of France through persecution, they testified to the miraculous and the gifts of the Spirit in their ranks. Moving forward again into revivalist history, there's great evidence of the gifts of the Spirit in the first great awakening and the other awakenings. Jonathan Edwards, who was the great theologian of revival, testifies to some very strange things that went on during the awakening, and yet he believes they were of God, and he puts certain litmus tests to them. If you read Jonathan Edwards, you can, you can find that. Things that people would be denying today and say are weird manifestations, they embraced as of God. And you know what the basis of their embracing it was? Fundamentally, not how off the wall and scale the actual phenomenon was, but what was the fruit in the person's life after? That's the test. That's the test. Do you know what weird means, by the way? Just as an aside. If you wanted to, if you wanted to Google weird there and look it up on your dictionary on, or whatever, weird actually means supernatural. <laughs> Did you know that? So I want to be a weird Christian. <laughs> Maybe you're saying you've already achieved that. You're, you're, you've, <laughs> you've done well. You're weird. John Wesley, I've already mentioned, read his diaries. Read us some of the stuff that went on. The gifts of the Spirit and in the awakening, George Whitfield, the same, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, and even, believe it or not, the Calvinistic and generally cessationist, believing that these died out with the apostles, Spurgeon, was used several times publicly in the use of gifts of the Spirit, particularly the prophetic. David Pawson, uh, in one of his books, talks of Charles Finney um, and says that an English woman heard Finney pray in an unknown tongue during family devotions. And he assured her that it was a special gift God had given him, and behind it lay an experience which he described as follows, I quote, I received a mighty baptism in the Holy Ghost. I wept aloud with joy and love, and I do not know, but I should say I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. Both in Dallas and London, D.L. Moody, this is recorded, I believe, got up to preach, but found himself speaking to an amazed congregation in a strange tongue. Moody. And only after spending a little time in prayer and praise in this new language was he able to preach again in English. And there's other records of, of smaller meetings of his with young people that broke out uh, speaking in tongues. And it even appears, and this would be more my stable where I come from church-wise a few years ago now, even among the early brethren who set up the Lord's table and the original vision was that whoever you were, whatever background you came from, whether you were a clergyman or an ordinary man or woman, that you could sit around the Lord's table equal. When they set that up, it was a Someone brings a psalm, someone brings a word, you understand, someone brings a song, according to 1 Corinthians 14. But the original men were looking for all the manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit to be there. They were. So wherever revival took place, you know what happens? You find God's Spirit power in these special gifts. Wherever God pours out his spirit, why would you expect it 
to be any different than Pentecost when he pours out his Spirit again. Now, no doubt these gifts did fall out of use in the mainstream. But the question is, was it due to God's will? Or was it because of the coldness of the church? Was it because they replaced the administration of the Spirit with man-made tradition and form? It also appears, and Wesley actually remarks on this, that jealousy led to clergy criticizing gifts they didn't have themselves. And John Wesley says in his diary, Wednesday, August the 15th, 1750, listen, the grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began even then to ridicule whatever gifts they did not have themselves and to decry them as either madness or imposture. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, I hope you can see that the Bible actually, rather than denying that these gifts are for today, tell us they are. And we should look for them, we should expect them, and we should actually pursue them. History teaches us that wherever God pours out His Spirit, that these gifts are present. Am I saying that we ought to embrace absolutely everything in the name of the Holy Spirit? Far from it. Definitely not. Test the spirits to see whether they be of God. But I'm saying that if you want to encounter God, you've got to be honest with Scripture, and you've got to be honest with church history, and be open to everything that God would give you by His Holy Spirit. You cannot encounter His power whilst at the same time resisting the very source of that power, the Holy Spirit and His gifts. And I want to declare tonight, and I hope it's your confession as well, I believe everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Everything. I mean, think about it. If all the gifts and resources of heaven were necessary for the first Christians to bed in our faith in the first century, do we as latter-day Christians who are meant to be bringing in a final harvest in the end time before Jesus returns. Are we meant to be less equipped than the early Christians? Are we not meant to have the same power from on high? Did the Holy Spirit bring forth the best wine first? Is that the way the kingdom works? What way does the kingdom work? The best wine is kept to the last. And so, rather than the power of the Spirit gradually deteriorating through church history, surely the rule of the kingdom is to keep the best wine to the last. We are not left to dregs. All that Jesus died to purchase us, all that He rose again and ascended to pour out as gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, the nine gifts, they're for us. In fact, it's imperative if we are going to fulfill the commission that we have them and we use them. I didn't look look to see when I started. Maybe some of you could tell me, I don't know. But let me say this in finishing. I taught against these truths. In fact, if you were to look up, and it doesn't cause me any pride to to say this, far from it, embarrassment. If you look up my website, and you look at 1 Corinthians, and looking up there, and there's something wrong. Like, you come to chapter uh, 11, and then then it's chapter 15. And there's something missing in the middle. And it's missing in the middle because I took it off. I took it off because I had to repent. I had to repent. And I repented more than once of what I taught against and what I denied of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And this is how I'm going to close tonight. Okay, where you might have come here expecting all sorts. And that might happen, I don't know. God knows what he wants to do. But maybe what he wants you to do tonight 
is repent. You see, the things that we say and the things that we do, they remain as we said and as we do until we unsay and undo them. That's the way the spiritual realm works. It's not enough to say, oh, no, no, everything's fine. No, I, 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 you know, take it or leave it a wee bit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be involved in it. But I'm not against it. No. no. If you want to know the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ in your life, and you previously have been in a place of opposition to the gifts of the Spirit, likelihood you have spoke against them in some context, even casual conversation. Maybe you have slandered people who have moved or operated in them. Or maybe you've just been cynical or skeptical. Or by sitting on the fence, being apathetic towards them. And I've got authority to say this to you because I probably repented about this more than any in the room. You need to repent if you want to experience the blessing of these gifts. You need to repent. Will you? Oh, that was interesting, dear. That was interesting. I'm not interested in being interesting. I'm interested in bringing you to a place where you can experience and taste of this life. This is real stuff. Will you repent? Maybe you didn't even know gifts of the Spirit existed, but maybe you were in a tradition that denied them. I was not only... And and don't misunderstand me. I love the background that I have, and I thank God for a grounding in the Word, and I thank God for my spiritual family that I was born into and grew up in and that discipled me. I thank God for them, and I honor them. But they didn't believe these things. And I can't fault them, because I didn't either. And I was under a covering of unbelief regarding it, and I was part of that covering of unbelief. But I want you to understand, even if you have been one of the, the... the dumb sheep you might think that follow that particular way, you're still responsible. Will you repent? Repent of coming under that teaching. Repent of denying anything. You might need to go home and search it all out. I'm not suggesting. It took me a number of years to sort all this out. I'm still learning. You should have a big L plate on me tonight in these weeks. I'm still learning very much. There's others far, far ahead of me. But everything starts when we repent. Change our mind. Change directions. 